Searched the earth for something that could satisfy a peace for the hurt I have buried deep inside. Knees on the floor, I finally found everything I needed. You lifted my soul and opened up my eyes. You're running my story. 
days I'm chasing after what won't last I'm done with building these castles that crumble like sand Oh, knees on the floor, I finally found it
don't let your heart be in trouble and hold your head up high. Don't fear evil. And fix your eyes on this one truth. God is madly in love with you. So take courage, hold on, be strong. Remember where comes from. No.
You guys can grab a seat real quick. Um, have a few announcements for you. So if you don't know me, my name is David. I'm one of the guys on staff at Salt Company and Doxa Church here. And so one of the things we want to just re-announce, I know we've been talking about it a little bit. We even had kind of a, a breakout after Salt Company last week about it, but is student leadership. And so if you're in the room and you are not a leader, but you are a follower of Jesus, and you're basically in this place where you're saying, hey, I like Salt Company. I've been coming for a while. And, and I, you're basically raising your hand and saying, I want to follow Jesus, but not only that, I actually want to be like discipled in a deeper way. Like I want to, I want to learn how to pray better. I want to learn how to read my Bible better. I want to learn how to share my faith in a more effective way. Um, that's what student leadership is about. Like if you were here, kind of the, when some of the students who are leaders who were talking about leadership, right, that kept saying over and over again, like leadership isn't even quite the right word because it's really not so much about you stepping out and kind of like in this authoritative way, like leading this ministry, but it's really about you just raising your hand and saying, hey, I want to be poured into at a deeper level. And so for those of you who are student leaders, you know that that's basically what it is to be a student leader. Um, you get time with the staff. You get time in this thing called discipleship groups where we're like really intentionally like trying to help you follow Jesus um, in a deeper way. So if you have any questions about that, we'd love to answer those. But for me, um, one of the reasons that I'm a, a pastor today, one of the reasons that I'm uh, planting a church next year is really what God did in my life through Salt Company, and not just in Salt Company, but specifically through being a student leader. When I was a freshman, I was like you. I was looking at my life, and I was like, man, I've got like sin. I don't really understand the Bible very well. I'm not sure if I really know how to share my faith. I'm definitely not like a leader. Um, and someone challenged me to sign up, to do an interview, to fill out the application, and try to become a Salt Company leader. Um, and it was actually through that process that Jesus really began to start to change my life. So if you're in the room and you're thinking about it, I want to encourage you and kind of push you over the edge and say, do it. Um, it's a really, really awesome ride. And it's a great way to spend your four years in college. And here's what I can promise you. I promise that if you become a Salt Company leader and you faithfully give yourself to this process, you will love Jesus more at the end of your time in college than you do today. And you'll look more like him as well. And so if you're a Christian, that's ultimately what you want your four years in college to be about anyway. So that's a little plug for Salt Company leadership. Uh, the next thing we're doing is we have a late night at Salt Company tonight. So I don't know if you've ever been to one of these, but basically it's just we're, we're saying, hey, there's certain topics that don't come up in First Peter kind of as we're teaching through it. But they're super important topics for Christians who are trying to follow Jesus here at UW-Madison. And so we want to talk about one of those tonight. So tonight we're talking about uh, drinking. We're talking about alcohol. We're talking about partying. What does it look like to kind of be a Christian and to be in a context like Madison that has like a heavy drinking culture, heavy partying culture, how do we interact with that? How do we think about that as Christians? And so if you're like a student here, <laughs> you should come to this. Uh, it's really important, not just if that's something you kind of struggle with. It's like you're one of those people that, you know, you, you come to Salt Company and then after this you go out and you party with your friends. Not just if you're in that category you should come to this. But if you're someone who's like, I have never been in the party scene whatsoever at all. Uh, I've never even like drank alcohol, like wherever you're at on the spectrum, we want to invite you because this will actually be really helpful. Just how do you navigate living in a city like Madison, Wisconsin as a Christian? So that's what we're going to talk about tonight at the Late Night Salt Company. But before we do that, stand up. We are going to... That's not it. 
No. This is Will. Willis. Tyler. If you don't know us, we're secret leaders together. So we kind of like to do things together, um, such as lead and stuff. So the last time that announcements were interrupted, you heard that two families in Doxa were pregnant. And I got to tell you, Tyler and I are pregnant with a really good idea. Tyler's going to tell you about it. Yes, I am. I'll tell you. Guys, next weekend, we are going to do a trip to Devil's Lake to climb and camp and eat food, I think, I hope, and other cool stuff. So there won't be any camping. It's just Saturday. We're going to hike and climb, and we're going to grill some brats. And does anybody actually like hot dogs? I don't think so. Okay, maybe a few hot dogs. Maybe a few hot dogs. And then we'll play spike ball and volleyball. It's going to be great. So next Saturday, talk to your connection group leader or any leader if you want to come, uh, and we'll get rides all organized and everything like that. But just know about it. Next Saturday, plan on it. And now you can stand up and talk to somebody around you. Alrighty, you guys can find your seat, um, and as you're doing that, you can find your Bible. I'll be reading from 1 Peter 11 through 17. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, right outside this room to the left, there's Bibles there. They're there for you to take home if you don't have one. Um, so, oh, my name is Ava. If we haven't met, um, I'm a student leader. So... First uh, Peter, verse 11 through verse 17. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I'll pray for us. God, we just thank you that your word is truth and that we can rest in that. And I just pray that tonight we would continue to align our hearts and our lives to you as the cornerstone and yeah spirit I just ask that you would speak through Ronnie and um, you're the only one that can soften our hearts and I just pray that we would have an open mind to what you are going to teach us tonight and that we would grow to know you more Amen. all right thank you Ava so that's first Peter 2 if you're not there if you want to turn there my name is Ronnie one of the pastors at Doxa, and then I direct Salt Company. Excited to teach you guys tonight. If you are new and just jumping in, we're like right in the middle of a series through the book of First Peter, verses 11 through 17 tonight. And as we've been talking about, like one of the, the big parts about Salt Company is not just Thursday night, but this thing we do called Connection Group. And so who here's uh, at least been to a Connection Group before? Raise your hand if you've like been to one, you know a leader. Okay, so at the beginning of this message, what I want you to do with me is I want you to imagine that you're at Connection Group, okay? And you're at, uh, your Connection Group meets at Chadbourne, is that what it's called? Is there a place called Chadbourne? So it's the one over by uh, Bascom, right? Nicholas, by Bascom, okay. So you're at your Connection Group, meets at Chadbourne. There's like 10 of you piled into this dorm room. Um, But as you're you're meeting for Connection Group, you you kind of shut the door and you're all keeping pretty quiet because you don't want anyone to hear what you're talking about, or they don't, you don't want them to know what you're doing in the room for Connection Group. Okay, so you meet together, you're, you're talking about life, you're encouraging each other about what God's teaching you, you're praying each other, you're, you're strengthening each other in your faith, and then as you wrap up your time together, you're kind of in the, the circle, your heart feels strengthened, you feel like you've got the boost that you need in your week to keep following Jesus, and then you kind of quietly slip out the door, because again, you don't want anyone to, to see you, and you actually head over towards Bascom because you live in Lakeshore. Okay, so you got the long walk over Bascom. It's nighttime, it's like nine o'clock, maybe Monday night or something like that. You're, you're walking towards Lakeshore and, and as you walk towards uh, Bascom, you start to get this pit in your stomach feeling. Okay, it's, it's the feeling of fear and dread. And it's not like the, the dread and the fear of like you're, you don't want to climb up the hill and you'll get too tired or it's not like you're afraid of the dark. It's because you're afraid of what you're going to see when you get to Bascom Hill. You're dreading not just what you're going to see, but potentially who you're going to see. Okay, but you keep on walking. You start to think in your mind about some of the scripture that you talked about with your connection group and you're silently praying to yourself just under your breath uh, for God to give you the strength to face what you know that you're about to see on the hill. And as you round the corner in the dark, you can actually see it just far off in the distance, just kind of 
faintly, you, you can start to see them. And you're not close enough yet to make out any faces, but you see just like the, the glowing light or what's left over of it from the flames. And as you walk closer, you, you start to take some small comfort in the fact that at least you can't hear them anymore. And so as you walk up Bascom Hill, as much as you want to keep your head down and just kind of not look and, and just walk up the hill, you know that you have to at least look up and see. And sure enough, in the dark, you look up and maybe just to your left and you look and you see there your friend. Okay, and it's that friend that you'd actually notice they weren't at connection group tonight. The friend that you've been faithfully following Jesus with. Hanging there, body limp, head down, off to the side. You see just like the charred remains from the flames. They've been crucified. Okay, and it's too dangerous for you to linger there and look because someone could see you and think it's suspicious, right? So you, you keep on walking, you keep your head down, and you're, you're just trying to get to the top of Bascom so you can get over to the lakeshore side, and you're passing dozens and dozens of other students who just this week have been nailed to these poles and burned and martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. If that was what we were facing how would your faith hold up, okay, in circumstances like that? I mean, seriously, ask yourself, would you, do you think if that's what it was like on our campus, you would still choose to follow Jesus? Would he be worth the risk for you? Okay, and praise God that that is not our current reality here in 2021 in Madison, Wisconsin, but actually around the world, there are Christians that face violent persecution for their faith, and if you're new to Salt Company, you just kind of showed up, and this is the, the opening story, I'm uh, welcome. Here, here, we, here we are. This, that might not have been the best sales pitch to, to get you to come back. And, I, and I don't, I'd much rather start the sermon with like a, a joke or something, but, um, and not something so dark. But this kind of illustration I just used, this was actually close to the reality of what the original readers of First Peter were facing. Okay, Peter, he wrote this during the first century, the first generation of the Christian church. And these, these Christians, they lived in Roman-occupied territory under the reign of this emperor named Nero. Okay, and there's been a lot of frustration just in our own country, in our own time this year, like across the political spectrum, right, with our government and our leadership. And there's this unrest. And, and honestly, there is like increasing pressure on Christians in, in America but let me just put Nero into perspective for you, okay? So this Emperor Nero, AD 54 to 68 is when he was reigning. And I just had like an like a article that I was reading about him. I'm just going to read you from it because it explains his life. And the, the title of it was just Savage Madman, okay? So this is, this is Emperor Nero. Nero, a man with light blue eyes, okay? So they're going to help you picture him. So picture him, this guy with light blue eyes, a thick neck, protruding stomach, and then spindly legs. Okay, so picture this guy. Light blue eyes, thick neck, protruding stomach, spindly legs. He was a crazed and cruel emperor. A pleasure-driven man who ruled the world by whim and by fear. And it, and it just goes to show the difference that an upbringing makes. Because his mother, the plotting Agrippina, Agrippina is her name, she managed to convince her husband Claudius to adopt her son Nero and put him ahead of Claudius' own son, first in line for the throne. 
Okay, so she was power hungry. And it goes on to say, maternal concern not satisfied. She then murdered Claudius, her husband, and then Nero ruled the world at age 17. Okay, so freshman in college age. The young Nero, having been tutored by the servile philosopher and pedophile Seneca, was actually repulsed by the death penalty, but he resourcefully turned this weakness into a strength. He eventually has his mother stabbed to death for treason, his wife Octavius beheaded for adultery, and then it says he took Octavius's head and displayed it for his mistress, Papia, whom he later kicked to death. And then it says the Senate made thanks offerings to the gods for this restoration of public morality. Okay, so that was, that was public morality in their day. Nero just exemplified it. That was their country. This is what the Christians were living through. And it says, unfortunately, that is but the bloody tip of a spear of the treacherous iceberg of Nero's reign. Yet such activities, they actually overshadowed the few constructive things he attempted, albeit without success. You know, the abolition of indirect taxes to help the farmers, the building of a Corinthian canal, the resettlement of people who had lost their homes in this thing called the Great Fire of Rome in 64 AD. And that Great Fire in Rome, it's really important because basically what happened is there was this big fire that burned down Rome. And Nero, it says, he tried to pin the blame for the fire on the city's small Christian community. Okay, and so appropriately, because he, he blamed the fire on them, it says he burned many of them alive, including the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament. They were said to be martyred as a result. But then here's the kicker. The rumor has it that it was actually Nero that lit the city on fire. And it was said that he was seen singing this poem called The Sack of Troy, and while he was enjoying the bright spectacle that he ignited, he went about singing. And, and this wasn't unreasonable for Nero because for years he had made a fool of himself by publicly playing the lyre and singing, literally commanding that everyone watch him in his performance. And then the end of Nero, it just says, political turmoil finally forced this troubled emperor to commit suicide. His last words were, what a showman the world is losing in me. Okay, so that guy... That's, that's the emperor that in this text tonight that Peter is referring to. This is the context into which Peter writes verses 11 and 12. Look back down with me. He says, beloved, he's talking to the Christians. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, so in the face of this climate of persecution and pressure that they were living under, how does Peter tell them to respond? He says, beloved, remember this world is not your home. You're exiles here. You will be misunderstood, even persecuted for your faith. But I urge you, your fight, it's not against the Roman government. Okay, it's against the passions of your flesh, the sin that's in your own soul. To paraphrase, he says, I, I urge you to live these good and honorable, even beautiful lives in front of the whole world, that they may see your good deeds, and one day when God sets everything right in the end, in this broken world, they'll actually glorify him when they look at your life. Okay, so Peter, he doesn't tell them to fight back and like try to overthrow the government. He doesn't tell them to flee and hide their faith from the world. He doesn't tell them to give up or give in to the culture. What he tells them instead is to be resilient. Okay, we, we titled this study through First Peter, Resilient Faith, and the dictionary definition of that word, resilient, 
It simply means to withstand or recover quickly from difficult conditions. To withstand or to recover quickly from difficult conditions. That's what resilient means. And so Peter, he's urging them. He's urging these Christians to live with this resilient type of faith in a hostile world. Right? A faith that stands firm and is even strengthened when it's tested. If you remember back what he said in in chapter 1, look at verse 6 of chapter 1. He said, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's call to these Christians is for a resilient faith, a faith that gets stronger when it's tested by the fire. Okay, but here's the thing. For us right now, like honestly, there, there really are serious threats coming to like religious liberty in America and in our future as Christians in America. And we're not quite there yet, but you can kind of see it looming on the horizon. It's going to happen in our lifetime. It is going to get more and more uncomfortable to be a Christian. It is. But for us right now, the main threat that we face is actually something more subtle and seductive. And it's just this, this temptation to be cool and to remain comfortable. Okay, right now the main threat to your faith isn't religious, violent persecution, but peer pressure. That's the main threat. And so here's, here's a question I think just like as modern college students in America right now that should haunt us as Christians, and it's this. If we fold under peer pressure right now, how will we hold up under persecution if and when it comes in the future? And this is why in 1 Peter, like he, he's urging us to start cultivating a resilient faith now. Yeah, this is where he's going and really the whole rest of the letter. He's trying to help us to know how to live out this type of faith, this resilient faith in Jesus Christ. And so for the rest of this sermon, we're going to look at verses 13 through 17 and just look at three aspects, okay, three aspects of what resilient faith is. How do we live with resilient faith in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile toward followers of Jesus. Okay, number one, resilient faith is obedient. Look at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Okay, so again, put yourself in the shoes of these early Christians. Do you see what Peter's telling them to do? You remember who Nero is? Peter is telling them to be subject to the authority of the government that was persecuting them. He's saying obey Nero and his governors. You know, and like this year, like, like maybe you didn't love all of the different mandates and things that came out because of COVID, but they weren't killing us. This is what these, these Christians were facing. And so, why in the world is Peter telling them to obey this government? Okay, he gives a couple reasons. The first one, he says in verse 14, he says, ultimately, the government, it was uh, appointed by God. It's supposed to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Okay, it's this authority that is given to human government by God. And this was true in their time. Like, there, there were laws in place by the Roman government that were an attempt to help the community flourish, and God commands his people to participate in that to subject themselves to that authority. And we could give like a million different examples of this today of just, there are plenty of laws, right, that truly do aim, right, at punishing evil 
and promoting good. And, and you can disagree with like a, like a particular political strategy for it, but that's not a good enough reason to not subject yourself to the authority of the government because it's given to us by God, okay? So Peter, he tells him that. He says, obey because it honors the God-given role that the government plays in our world, even if it gets carried out imperfectly. Okay, so you might not agree with every single law or decision or policy or strategy, but Peter's saying as Christians, you still need to be subject to it because God put it there. All right, so that's number one. But number two, the second reason he gives for obeying the government is that he says it's ultimately a way that you're actually obeying God. Verse 13, he says, be subject, what? For the Lord's sake, okay, to every human institution. And then if you look down at verse 15, he says, for this is the will of God. Okay, so to get like really practical, if you cheat in school, you're not just breaking school policy, you're actually dishonoring God, Peter would say. Okay, if you drink underage, you're not just breaking the law, you're going against the will of God. Okay, it's, it's pretty simple, right? It's, it's simple. It might not be easy all the time to subject yourself to these different authorities, but it's simple. But I do think like this question arises for us, okay? And this is the question. What if the government or my school or my parents or whatever the authority is are asking me to submit to something, to do something that causes me to disobey God? What do I do then? And you know, my first thought for you on this is actually that this is a great reason why some of you out here need to make it like your ambition in life, your holy ambition in life to go out into the world, into all these different spheres of society, like into higher education, into the government and bring like a godly influence into that space. Because Peter's saying like God has ordained these human institutions and these authorities to actually do good in the world and to do his will in the world. And we need Christian influence in those spaces to actually influence them toward that. There's this guy named William Wilberforce. You should, if you're, if anything I'm saying is kind of like planting a seed in you, of like, yeah, I want to go out, out in the world and do that, you should look up this guy named William Wilberforce. Okay, this is what it means to be the salt of the earth. Salt company, like to, to be the salt of the earth is to get scattered out into the world, every sphere of society, and bring like the positive and preservative influence of God with you in that place. Okay, so this, this tension we live in, that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that Peter, he for sure knows that this is a tension. He knows that these Christians are facing that. They're facing literal violent persecution in Rome. And so he basically gives them some criteria to navigate this. Look back at verse 16 and 17. This is what he says. He says, okay, so this is what you do. You live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And then look what he does. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. He's talking about Christians. Fear God, honor the emperor. So he's, he's kind of given them like this grid to work through. He says, your primary allegiance is to God. You are his servant. He is the primary and ultimate one that you are to obey. He says, you're to fear God. You're to honor the emperor. Okay, fearing God, it means to worship him alone. It means you don't just honor him, it means you honor him more than anyone else, right? We don't, we don't fear and worship the emperor. We don't fear and worship the president. We don't fear and worship the governor. We don't fear and worship our mom. None of these humans deserve that term fear. You fear God alone, but then because you're worshiping God, you honor those he's placed in authority 
over your life. Okay, you honor them because they're just humans, right? They're humans made in the image of God, worthy of a certain measure of honor, but then you also honor them according to the authority that he's put over you. Okay, so real practically, if your dad tells you that you need to get a job this summer and you are like still living under his authority, what do you need to do? Get a job this summer, Will. You need to get a job. If the president of the university tells you that you need to get a COVID test, you're going to go into that room. Is it dark in these rooms that you go into? I, always, I try to picture you guys. You go, you go, you got to go into the room and you got to drool, drool in the corner, right? You're just in the corner. Everyone's in there like zombies just drooling. You do that. You submit. You do that. If they tell you to do it, you get your app out, you drool. If the federal government one day tells you to pay taxes, what do you do, Dylan? You pay your taxes, Dylan. Thank you. But here's the thing. Peter would say this, when you're faced with a choice of either obeying God or obeying a different authority figure in your life, what do you do? You obey God. You're his servant. Okay, so if your mom has started to notice that you are really starting to prioritize the kingdom of God, kind of like in a scary way in your life, like your, your values are shifting, your life decisions are maybe shifting, and it's because Jesus has gotten a hold of your heart and you're starting to value his kingdom and there's starting to be some friction and some tension in there. You need to, to figure out what does it look like for me to honor my mom, but what does it look like for me to serve my king? Okay, if the university at some point tells you that you can't share about your faith in Jesus, you need to obey God and tell people the gospel. You know, our Japan team, they, they've been in, they were in, in China at one point where it was literally, you couldn't have churches like legally there. You couldn't share the gospel legally. And you know what they did? They started a church. Yeah. And it's, there, there is religious freedom in Japan though. So they're going to do that. They're going to do that legally. But th- this whole thing, guys, like it gets even bigger scale than this. This was like the tension that Martin Luther King Jr. was, was living in. He looked out at America and during the civil rights movement of the 60s, he saw that there are unjust, ungodly laws in place that discriminate against people based on their race. And so he leads this whole movement of civil disobedience against the government. It was nonviolent, but it was disobedient to the government because he says we have to obey God. We have to align the laws in this country more with the will of God. Okay, and so some of these scenarios we talk about, they might happen, but there's something that Peter's actually a little bit more concerned about with these Christians. He's concerned that they will use their allegiance to God as, in verse 16, he says, a cover-up for doing evil. Okay, using their freedom in God as a cover for doing evil. So it's like this. It's like you and your, your other 19-year-old friends, you decide that drinking beer together is a great way to connect relationally and you get in some great talks about life and about God and you even pray together. And it's honestly, it's like a really encouraging time in the faith. And you know what I would say to that? I agree. It is. It, it is nice. It is, it is enjoyable to enjoy the gift of beer with your friends. It aids conversation. It's great. But it's illegal to drink alcohol if you're 19. That's what the law is right now in this country. And so the fact that you're talking about Jesus and that you're praying while you're doing it doesn't mean you're not subject to the law. So that would be an example of using your freedom as a cover up for evil. You're free to serve God, you're not free to break the law. 
Okay, so the bottom line for Peter here is he's saying like a resilient faith in a world that's increasingly hostile to faith, it's an obedient faith. Christians should be known for their obedience, their, their ability to submit under authority, the way that they honor the authorities that God puts in their life. And so we should be good citizens of our country. We should be good members of like the campus community. And the only acceptable time to disobey the government or any other human authority is if they're asking you to directly disobey God. But Peter, as he writes this, he's not saying, you know, Christians, when people look at you, I want them to just look and say, what amazing rule followers. What nice people. I just, I just love the way that they follow the rules. <laughs> like, how lame would that be? That's not what Peter's calling them to. He's saying, when people look at you, I want them to say, what compelling, beautiful lives. What beautiful lives. And that's the next thing that he says, resilient faith is compelling. Okay, look back at verse 12. It says, keep your conduct or your, your manner of life among the Gentiles honorable. The, the real word there is beautiful. Keep your manner of life among the Gentiles beautiful so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Okay, so Peter, he, he's saying, live such beautiful lives among the world that in the end, they can only attribute it to God. And then in verse 15, he says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put into silence the ignorance of foolish people. So just think about some people in your life right now that have, have an ability to look at your life, people that aren't Christians, okay? People, that he's, he's using the word Gentiles here, which would have been not Christians in that day. They're looking in at your life. What would they say about the conduct, the manner of your life? Okay, what, what are the words that they would use to describe you? And, and if you've been a Christian for any number of years, you've experienced some level of being misunderstood, some level of being opposed for your beliefs. But Peter thinks we should also be compelling people with the beauty of our lives. That's what he thinks should happen when somebody looks at a Christian. He's saying even if they speak against you as evil or they don't understand you, your good life should eventually leave them speechless with nothing to say. Okay, that's why back in verse 11, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, the passions of the flesh. Let's take like jealousy as an example, okay? Jealousy is one of those, those sins, one of those passions of the flesh. Now, track with me on this. It like, it feels so like good when it's in, internal in you. Like it, not, maybe not good, but it feels like it's this thing that's screaming for you to let it out. It's just like you, you have to. It's, it's telling you you have to let it out. It feels so good. It feels so right. But then when you let it out, when you say that, that jealous thing, it is so ugly, right? When you, say, when you say the jealous thing, it comes out of your mouth. I remember just like a, a week ago, I was driving in my car, and I had a, a moment of jealousy earlier in the day. And by the grace of God, I didn't say it in the moment. And I, I was kind of like, oh, I'm, just, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. And then I got in my car and I was processing it. And I said it out loud and it was horrible. It was gross. It was ugly. And Peter is saying that people should look at our lives and not see like the ugliness of the passions of the flesh, but the beauty of what it means to be the beloved people of God. Okay, he's not calling us, like giving us this compelling call to be nice. He's not calling us to blind submission. He's not calling them to just this like kind of bland life. 
He's calling them to be compelling. He's calling them to a life that can't be overlooked, a life that demands an answer. He says, you're, you're free. Look at verse 16. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living, leaning into your life as a servant of God. He's calling them to live a life that is like a beautiful, compelling alternative to a watching world. So here, here's maybe a scenario that might come up in your life. Back, this is, we're going to go back to the underage drinking example. Here's a scenario. You're out with your friends on, on a Friday night. You're all underage, and they want to drink alcohol. Okay, there's, there's basically, there's two options that we usually take, but there's a third one that Peter would encourage us to take. Okay, the first one is we basically just cave to the pressure and we say yes. Okay, they ask us if we want to drink and we give in to the, to the passions of the flesh. We, we disobey the law. We cave in to the pressure and we just say yes. That's, some, that's something that we do. The second option is we say no, but then we give like a, a boring reason for why or like no reason for why. And, and they're like, well, why don't you want to do it? And you're like, well, there's these rules and there's this Jesus and he wants me to be nice and I'm just not supposed to do that. And they're like, why aren't you supposed to do that? And you're like, I don't even know. And then, and then it's just kind of it's just, it's just like you don't, you don't, it's like this, it's like, well, Peter would say, don't do that. He says, when they, when they look at your life, they should be compelled. And so here's the third option. Here's what, here's what we can do as Christians. We don't say yes. We don't say no with a boring, nah. we say no, and then we follow it up with a compelling yes to Jesus. Okay, you, ha- you have a firm no, but then you have a compelling yes because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and you, you stand up and you say, I don't, I, the reason I'm not gonna do this is because I don't, I don't need this to have a good time. Sure, once I'm of age, like beer is a good gift to, to enjoy, but I'm a servant of the king, and so I'm gonna obey him by obeying this law, and I don't need to sacrifice my integrity to have a good time. I can have a good time without this. You say no, and then you have a compelling yes to Jesus. This is, this is what Peter's talking about. When you see Christians, they're, they're compelling. They have this beautiful alternative life that they offer to the world. Okay, but we know this. Sometimes beautiful things in this world are labeled as evil, right? They're misunderstood, and, and sometimes they even get beat up and in Jesus' case, murdered. Okay, Isaiah 53 says of Jesus that he had no form or majesty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And so as, as sojourners and exiles in this world, we, we cannot expect to be fully accepted and we should not expect to be received any better than our Savior was. So when, when you feel that, that peer pressure, that, that pressure to fit in and be cool, or the pressure to settle in and be comfortable, just know that it's never really going to last in this life. Jesus, he has us walking in a totally different direction. And that's why Peter, he's calling us to a resilient faith that is not anchored in how people perceive us, but in how God does. That's what he means in verse 17 when he says, fear God. He's saying, 
You need to live honorably toward all people. They need to be able to look at your life and see something compelling in it, something beautiful, something that actually draws them in. But in the end, you need to care most about what God thinks about your life because you're his servant. Okay, and one day, you're gonna meet him face to face. And so that's the last one, guys. It's resilient faith is hopeful. Resilient faith is, is hopeful. Peter He's, he's basically, he's trying to figure out, okay, how can I help these Christians be engaged, great citizens in like the evil Roman Empire, but without putting their hope in the Roman government or in Emperor Nero or in any attempt to like overthrow the Roman government, right? He wants them to, to basically have both feet firmly planted in the ground, but both eyes focused on heaven, He's called this their, their living hope. So, so both feet on the ground, fully engaged in the world, but looking to the world that they are going to. Look at verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. When? On the day of visitation. Okay, the day of visitation. This is a reference to judgment day. Okay, the day that is coming when God, our creator, our supreme authority, he will come down to earth for a final visit. Can you imagine what that day is going to be like? Okay, if you read kind of the back half of the book of Revelation, you can actually see a vision that the apostle John had about what it's going to be like. But that day, it's the day when God will, once and for all, he's going to visit this earth and he's going to assume full and final authority over all of his creation. God is gonna do what all the human governments throughout history have failed to do, what they've always failed to do. He's gonna ultimately, as verse 14 says, punish evil and praise those who do good, but with perfect justice, with perfect judgment. Okay, in that day, there's gonna be no more misunderstandings. Peter, he says that the world is gonna look at the beautiful lives of the persecuted people of God and finally give God the glory that is due his name. The servants of God will be vindicated and the whole world will stand in silence. But this won't be the first time that God has visited us. Okay, Jesus Christ, he lived the most compelling and beautiful life ever recorded in human history. Even people like Gandhi, who didn't believe that he was God, just marveled at the moral integrity of Jesus, the, like the gritty, tough, but gentle and determined love, especially for his enemies, the wisdom of all of his ethical teaching. Jesus, apart from being God incarnate, he was good like no one had ever been before and never has been since. But as the prophet Isaiah predicted, he was despised and rejected by men and they esteemed him not. They didn't honor him or recognize him. They crucified him. Okay, when you think about it, and didn't his, his crucifixion really just highlight the utter failure and corruption of all human government and all human authority because he was the most innocent man that had ever lived? Okay, but between an unjust trial that he went through to the angry mob that shouted for his death to the mocking that he received as he hung on the cross, Jesus, he kept his mouth shut and his conduct honorable. 
And even though they spoke of him as an evildoer, they could not deny that they were witnessing something of the glory of God. Okay, the way that Jesus handled himself as he hung on the cross, it did eventually put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people who killed him. Until there was this moment where this Roman centurion, he that had executed him, he breaks the silence and he's just standing there at the cross after the dust has kind of settled and Jesus has died and he's hanging there and he looks up at Jesus after he just witnessed the way that he had suffered with such humility and strength and love and he says, surely this man was the son of God. In this moment, the cross of Jesus Christ, this was the first day of God's visitation. Okay, God, he broke into our broken world as the man Jesus Christ, and he came to bring judgment on sin and salvation for sinners. Okay, on the cross, Jesus, he wasn't being punished for the evil that he had done. He was actually getting punished for our evil. His dying was in our place for our sin. Okay, do you know that yet? Has that truth sunk into your heart that that Jesus Christ, what he's doing on the cross— is he is not being punished for any evil that he had ever done. He's being punished for yours, for mine. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So you, individual person sitting in your seat, your sin, you will either pay for that on judgment day or you could ask Jesus to pay for it for you on his judgment day on the cross. This is what Isaiah 53 says. It says, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus Christ, he actually did come as a conquering king, but he didn't come to overthrow the Roman government, right? He came to overthrow Satan, who tempts us to sin and wages war against our souls, Peter says. He came as the true servant of God, the suffering servant, okay? The one who would stand in our place, die for our sins, heal us by his wounds, and then he rose from the grave. Jesus Christ, he rose victorious from the grave three days later, proving that he was no casualty of the Roman Empire. He was indeed the king of the world, the true authority. That's why for Christians, resilient faith, like our hope is never in any human leader or politician or government, but always and only in Christ, the king who hung on the cross, the king who rose from the grave. And so in your time at UW, it will likely, in the next couple of years, not get so bad that the government begins crucifying Christians on the side of Bascom Hill. But guys, even if it did, Peter's charge here would be the same. Okay, he, would, he would say to us, live as people who are free. Live as servants of God during the time of your exile. Servants of God, this is your identity. The world is not your home. Both feet are planted here, but you are looking towards your true home. The world is not your home, but you are free. And all the pressure and the persecution in the world, it cannot defeat your faith because yours is a resilient faith. It is indestructible, as indestructible as the Jesus Christ that you are united to. 
Okay, you have a, a faith, you have a trust. What has happened in your heart if you're a Christian is you've been united to Jesus Christ in such a way that when the heat gets turned up, you actually get stronger. You become more compelling. And because of all of that, you focus more on your living hope. And so, listen to me. If you keep following Jesus, like if you, if you follow him for these couple years of college, and if you get sent out of here as the salt of the earth, and you follow him for decades and decades to come, I promise you it will not be easy. I really think it's going to start to get harder. I think it's going to be more uncomfortable to be a Christian. None of us are ever going to be as cool as we could have been in the eyes of the world because we chose to follow Jesus. But I promise you it will be worth it. It'll be worth it now. It'll be worth it forever because he is worth it. Who you have a chance to become in him is worth it. And the witness that your life has the potential to shine out into a dark world, it is worth it for them. So let's pray. Jesus, we, we come to you in a, a time of our lives where we are setting the trajectory for who we will be, who we will become, what we will do with this life that you've given us. And we thank you that we don't have to be the strong one because you are, you were. So Jesus, by faith, we, we unite ourselves to your strength, the, the strength of your death on the cross for our sins the strength of your resurrection from the grave. Jesus, we believe that your death was ours and your new life is ours. God, strengthen our faith tonight as we sing songs about you, about what is true, and our voices fill this room. Would you shift our eyes from this world to the next one, but would you keep our feet firmly planted on the ground? Because we have work to do here. So God, help us. Give us a Give us a sight of your glory as we, as we sing. Make our faith, our trust in you, make our lives more resilient for the good of the world around us and for your glory. Amen.
ransom this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm what heights of love what depths of peace when fears are still when striving cease my comforter my all in all here in the love of Christ I stand in Christ alone who took on flesh the fullness of God in hell this babe this gift of love and righteousness Scorned by the ones he came to save Till on that cross as Jesus died The wrath of God was satisfied my destiny no power of hell no scheme of man can ever block me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I'll stand
So the, the reason we live these obedient, submissive lives, right, is not because Christians are rule followers. It's not because we are law-like followers. It's because we're Christ followers, right? The reason we live these kind of lives is because we've actually found a more compelling story to live for because we've found a more compelling person to live for. His name is Jesus. So if you're here for the very first time, thanks for coming to Salt Company. Uh, we hope you come back. If you have any questions about any of this, come find uh, one of the leaders or one of the staff. We'd love to talk to you about that. But we have a late night coming up in five minutes, okay? We're going to get this rolling really fast because we know that you want to go back and get all your homework done because you're UW-Madison students and you study hard. So we're going to get this thing started fast in five minutes so that you can come to this and get back in your cars, go back to campus, and still study tonight, okay? So five minutes. We're going to start this late night on what it's like to be a Christian in Madison and partying, drinking, scene. See you in a few. Everybody leave Show me what it's like to dream Hey, go You the best uh, Hey, say it with your chest uh, Hey, yeah, yeah Wave them high, side to side Let them know we gon' rise We gon' shine hey, I need you to fight for me hey, I know you're my therapy hey, I know what we fight It's just to know we try Trying to keep it all clear, I got way too many thoughts, but in these expectations, got me feeling stuck like, think I feel it all the time, did I really miss my plan, I don't know how to go, when I'm low, but I know that you're close, that you're close, I've been away, yeah, losing my faith, yeah, hope I'm not late, trying to find grace, yeah, for my mistakes, yeah. I need to pray, yeah, 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 I need to pray. Yeah, wake up to the mirror like I need you to fight for me When I don't know what I believe yeah. Why does everybody leave? Show me what it's like to dream Hey, go, you the best
everybody Show me what it's like to drink Hey, go, you the best Hey, uh, say it with the chest Oh, the lights are... It's brutal. Like, you really yes. Hello, hello. All right. Take a seat. We're going to get this thing rolling. And let's see. 9.38. Ava, you keep me on time. We're going 30 minutes. Fast and furious here. So, welcome. This is called a late night because it is late at night. And it is a little extra thing that we're doing to talk about a topic that... Um, is, that, is an implication of even what the text was about tonight. And actually in chapter four, he's going to actually specifically talk about um, drunkenness in there. And so we, we wanted to get out ahead of it a little bit. 
and give it a little more attention tonight. And also, St. Patrick's Day is coming up next week, I believe. So that is the timing of this. Um, Drinking and partying is what we titled it. They kind of go hand in hand. And when you think about the college experience, you, you think about these two things. There's obviously a lot more that goes into partying than just drinking alcohol, but is a big part of it. And so we're kind of talking about all of that tonight with a special focus on, on alcohol. And, and for you as college students, if you're trying to follow Jesus, this is a big area of your life and a big thing that you got to try to figure out how to navigate. And so I'm Ronnie. You should have met me tonight already. This is my wife, Caitlin, who's going to be up here having a conversation with me. And then this is David Livingston. And so basically what you're going to see us do is just have like a conversation with each other in front of you and then, and then with all of you. And we're going to kind of take it in like three parts. First, we're going to talk a little bit about each of our stories with, with this. Like where do we come from with this? And then specifically, like what was the, what was the appeal for us? Did it deliver? Did it not deliver? Did it kind of deliver? Um, then we're going to shift to talking about what does the Bible have to say about this, and then we'll spend some time at the end talking to maybe some specific people in the room that might be in some different places. So let's kick it off with just kind of stories. So Caitlin, if you want to take the mic, we'll start with you. If you would introduce yourself, and then Caitlin, just tell us what has been your story with partying and drinking. Okay, these lights, you guys, are like really intense, so I'm having a hard time. Like, I don't, I don't know how you guys do this all the time. Um, so I'm going to just look at you. Um, so I'm Caitlin, I'm Ronnie's wife, um, but before I knew Ronnie, I was um, in high school, and that's really where my story like with drinking started. So um, I started drinking and partying pretty early at like 15, um, and really just, when you're 15, you just like don't know what you're doing in life in general, um, and then to be like wrapped up with like alcohol and like not even understanding really the consequences of some of my actions. Um, so that was the story, I would say, until I became a Christian. Um, I became a Christian my senior year of high school, um, but for a while there, like, I kind of had one foot in the world, one foot out, double life um, for quite some time, um, and really started, like, pursuing hard after Jesus once I got to college. So um, my freshman year, um, I really didn't have the traditional college experience of, like, going out and drinking because my high school years were spent how most people's, like, freshman year typically goes when they enter college. Um, but, yeah, I would say, like, is that, do you want me to talk more about that or just, like, that's enough? Yeah, keep going. Okay, all right. Um, <laughs> I was like, I don't know what to share. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I would say, like, the appeal for me was that Ronnie and I, we went to the same high school. Some of you know that. We went to, like, a large, like, 6,000-person high school. So... Um, it was like, it was kind of like the college experience in that like there were many parties to go to, there, there was always something happening, um, and there was just like a pressure really early on, similar to how freshmen feel here. That's how I felt like at 15 as a sophomore in high school, like just like that was what everyone was doing. Um, you went out, you went to different people's houses, and the appeal for me was mostly like I was super insecure, so um, like drinking made me more fun, I thought. Um, and I also thought like it was more attractive or something like that for, for you to be more fun. Um, so yeah, I think, but, but the, the root of it was that I was just like super insecure of myself. And, um, I thought that, I thought that I wasn't like that great. So alcohol made me cooler or something like that. So yeah, really that was my experience. And then the only other thing I was going to say is like, there is also when you when you turn 21 and you're a Christian, so like that was my scenario, I live with like three Christian girls, 
we all love Jesus, like we were 21 years old, um, so it's okay to drink, right? Um, and it's, that's also a tricky thing to navigate too, like to, because now it's okay, but then if you're like in Christian community, you, you'll see people be like, well, we can go out and like get drunk and stuff, and this is fine now, and you're like, ah, oh, but it's not. So there's something, there's a, that's maybe another conversation, but I think it can be tricky to navigate that as well when you're like post 21, trying to like live as a Christian and be honorable like with alcohol too. So. Okay, so then for me, Caitlin, when she was kind of sharing her story, that was. You, <laughs> Could I like give this back? No, you're, oh. it's yours. You got it. Yep. Um, <laughs> for for me, I so we went to the same high school. Um, Caitlin and I actually met our junior year of high school, and neither of us were really Christians, and she was still kind of... In a hot tub, right? In a hot tub. That's a a story for a different day, Dave. (laughs) Story for a different day. I I, I would love to tell the story. Maybe maybe one of the... Well, I I won't tonight. We don't have time tonight. We don't have time tonight. But, um, yes. I'm not here one week, and he tells that story. One of you better text me, because he's going to be in trouble. It's been told several times. When we were in the hot... The night that we met in the hot tub... You were still actively, actively drinking and partying. Okay. Now, for me, about a year before that, I was trying to get into that life, my sophomore year in high school. But what happened to me is that me and my friends, as we would, you know, we uh, drank and got drunk a handful of times and went to some parties. But what we kept doing is we would take my friend's uh, parents' alcohol and we kept getting caught. Okay, so they kept, they kept catching us. And so honestly, it just kind of came to a head to me, for me where we kept getting grounded and kept getting caught. And I got to the point where I was like, I just can't even get away with this. And so I wasn't able to do it anymore. And it wasn't because I loved God or anything. It was just, I was like, oh, I literally can't, can't even do this. So a year later when I met Caitlin, yes, in a hot tub, um, I, had already, I had already been um, off, off, uh, off the alcohol and stuff. So now, David, you've never drank alcohol before is what... <laughs> I heard. No, no, no. Oh. Um, I have drank it once. No, I, so my story, <laughs> my, no, my, my story uh, with, with alcohol and, and, yeah, and all of this. So my dad, he grew up with uh, an alcoholic grandfather and different uh, kind of alcoholics in, in his extended family. And so my dad grew up um, in a context where he saw alcohol abused in like a really destructive way. And so when he, my dad became a Christian, he kind of had decided, like, pretty hard line, I'm just not going to drink. Like, I've seen the destructive ways this can be used, and so I'm just going to decide not to drink at all. So my my parents are actually, like, teetotalers. Like, they don't drink at all. Tea um, what? Teetotalers. I, I think it's what people who don't drink call themselves. Or uh-huh. the people who do drink call people who don't drink. So anyway, they don't drink alcohol at all. So it's just not part of kind of our family growing up. And I think even growing up, um, you know, because of that, I think my parents had a... Uh, just like a distaste for uh, people who drank, period. So I think there was even actually some like self-righteous like judgment that was in my family kind of growing up towards anyone who would like dabble in alcohol at all. Um, and so I kind of grew up in, in that kind of environment. So I kind of had this idea that, yeah, I'm not going to drink because this is like an unwise thing to do. I kind of grew up in that kind of family. Uh, but yeah, in high school, me and my friends, um, yeah, like a lot of people drank. We went to like a, a smaller Christian school, so our social dynamics were like way weird and not the most <laughs> cool. Uh, but we still like wanted to drink as friends, and so we didn't really have like, my parents didn't have alcohol we could steal, so we like would literally go to gas stations and like we would steal alcohol. So like we, there was like a whole, like just a lot of things that were off in our lives. And so we, we started like stealing alcohol, and we're basically trying to figure out like how do we just experiment with this in our friend group. And it kind of all came to a head. There, there was one night where my friends, 
uh, basement, and we were all uh, very drunk. And my, my friend ended up like almost cutting like a few of his fingers off, like on, on glass. And anyway, we had to like it was it was a, it was a mess. It's a lot longer story. Basically, had to like call the cops, had to call parents. We're like, this is like not good. And um, a bunch of us got drinking tickets. And that, so my like story with with alcohol was like very very fast, very very deep, very quickly. But it only took place over like a few months. And then I kind of had this like come to Jesus moment after that and was like, I, okay, I'm like seeing where my life is headed with this. And it's, it's like really destructive, really fast. And so I kind of had like a hard stop. Um, yeah, like halfway through high school that kind of continued in through college. And so um, I actually didn't start drinking alcohol again until I was probably like 22 or 23 years old. Even when I turned 21, I, I uh, yeah, didn't, didn't drink at first, took mm-hmm. a while. Um, but yeah, I regularly enjoy alcohol now, so. So, so let me ask you guys both this, still related to your stories. What, when, if you can remember back, what was kind of like the promise or the appeal to drinking and partying that you were like, this is why I want to do this. This is the appeal. I honestly don't know that I really ever wanted to do it. I feel like it was like, um, I was a runner, like a pretty like track and field and cross country. So I was like pretty devoted in my sport. So I knew it was terrible for me, but like I did it because I just, that's the I hung out with and I wanted to hang out with them um so that was the appeal but then like I shared earlier I feel like part of it was like opposite sex like you want attention and um that got me attention or um yeah just to be like I feel like uh, when I was living the like double life part of like my journey um to being a Christian um I would say like the appeal then was that I didn't want people to think I was judgmental. So I was like, oh, I can have a drink and like not get drunk, but I was 16, like, so no. Um, But I think I just, yeah, I think I just didn't want to be a judgmental Christian. So I was like, I'm trying to be like a cool Christian and that wasn't great either, especially being 16, so. Okay, what about you, Dave? Remind me of the question. What was the appeal? What was the? Oh, the appeal, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, for, for me, it wasn't so much like fitting in. I think it, just, it was fun, you know. I mean, I think that's the, the truth about alcohol is like it, there is something that it does in you where it like it, you know, it takes away your inhibitions. It makes you bold. It makes you able to uh, act in social environments that are not actually normal with your personality, right? Things that are like it allows you to, to do things. And, and so I think for, for, for me and my friends, it was just like it, it does create an environment that can be fun or can uh, if you don't know what to do, you're like, well, we will drink and something interesting will happen. Um, and so I think like that, that's true. You know, that's mm-hmm. something that's true about it. And so we don't, we don't need to like mince words about it. Like there is something about alcohol that can be fun and can um, lead to environments like where you, there's stories that will happen the next day because alcohol was involved. So I think for, for me and my friends, that was it. So part of, part of tonight, even, and we're going to shift to the Bible in a second, is acknowledging that because there's, there's something, there's something about you know, all these things that God has created where there's like, there's like goodness in it or there's like a purpose for it. And oftentimes what sin is, is it's taking a good gift that God's given us and then just using it in the wrong context, using it for the wrong reasons, abusing it, blowing it out of, out of proportion. And that is like kind of at the core, one of the things that we do with alcohol, right? And so even the thing that you're, that you're tapping into with it and like the, the appeal of it, there, there's a way that that can actually be good. So that's where I want to go next is just talk about what, what does the Bible actually say about it. So that was our experience. I'll start with you, uh, Livingston. 
Um, and we can kind of go back and forth between each other because the Bible says a lot about it. But wherever you want to start, what's, what's something that you would want to share that says, like, here's, here's some perspective from the Bible about alcohol? Yeah, so, I mean, th- for, for me, the, the way I grew up having kind of like a negative view of alcohol or having like a, maybe a judgmentalism towards people who would drink, I think for me it was actually pretty revealing when I started understanding in the Bible how much like wine and, and alcohol is actually like lifted up as something that's actually yeah, made by God and is actually good. I mean, if you look at like the, the festivals of Israel, like God like blessed the, the Israelites with wine. And so Psalm 104 says like wine gladdens the heart, right? Like there's something that is like a gift from God. So like it's God's giving us this thing. And the thing that it does, like, is it's like it makes human beings happy, right? So like that's something that alcohol does. And the Bible seems to like uphold that and say, this is actually not something negative, it's something good, and actually God intended it for that purpose. Um, so I think for me, that was like one of the things that was like pretty revealing is that the Bible doesn't actually start with this like, hey, there's this thing in the world and it's like really bad, be really careful with this. It actually starts with kind of saying, hey, like one of the blessings of God is actually you would have the kind of abundance in your life where you wouldn't just need to drink things that keep you alive, like water, but you would actually have such an abundance of his provision that you'd actually be able to drink something like wine, which like tastes good and makes you happy. So that's like, so from the very beginning, mm-hmm. like, you know, God put this in our world, like you're saying, like it's actually a good gift that actually symbolizes in some ways, like the prosperity that comes when you're in relationship with God and he blesses a community. So even today, we're, we're teaching this class called Gospel 101 in Salt Company. Some of you guys are there and uh, Sam Roberts was teaching the class yesterday and today. And he walked us through the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And so if you're familiar with the story, part of, like the arc of the story is that there's this son who basically like looks at his father and says, hey, I want my inheritance now. I'm, I'm gonna leave you behind. And he goes out into the world to pursue what the text calls like reckless living. And so he's, he's partying, there's probably alcohol involved, there's women involved, there's all these things involved. And he's pursuing kind of like the pleasure and the joy that we know is like somewhat, somewhere like attached to like, this like celebrations and festivals and parties. And if you can think with me for a second and you know how the story ends, does anyone know what happens at the end of the story when he comes back to his father and what his father does for him? They have a huge party. Which, so it's, it's this crazy thing where he went out into the world and left his father behind. And as Jesus explains, this is supposed to be like a metaphor for our relationship with God. As we leave God behind in search of joy, in search of fulfillment, in search of life. And then in this reckless living, he ends up basically at rock bottom. He ends up in a pigsty. And then when he comes back to his father and his father forgives him, the thing that his father does is not say, okay, so no more partying. He actually throws him a party, but now like in the right context and with the right, the right fullness. So let, let's stay on that for just a second and like keep talking about the, po- the positive like aspects of alcohol and even partying. Caitlin, what, what thoughts do you have on that? Like you can have great conversation and like, um, like David was saying, like it can make people happy and it can be like a fun, like you can have a bottle of wine with your friends and it's not, it's fine. It's good. So, um, I would say that. And I think like there's a, yeah, I think like we're not to be ruled by anything, right? So nothing is supposed to be our master. So alcohol, you know, it's fine if it's not your master, if you're not like getting drunk and depending on it to like get you through the day or like you're depending on it to be able to have a good time with your friends like that's kind of not okay Mm -hmm. um 
So I guess that would be, I, I think it can be a really good thing as long as you don't make it something that it shouldn't be. If you, if you allow it to rule, rule any part of your life, then that's So that's a, that's a great one for y'all to take away, is there's, there's this thing that happens where we take like the good gifts that God gives us, and then we blow them out of proportion, and what the Bible says is that we, they turn into these things called idols. Okay, so we take something that's a good gift, and we basically elevate it to the status of God, and whatever is your God is the thing that controls you, right? And you, you become like a, a servant to that thing. And so that's kind of the dynamic that you have to watch for in your life with alcohol is it has this now become something that's controlling me? And so maybe, David, if you can take it from there. Like how, how do you figure out in your life like when or in somebody else's life, when has alcohol kind of crossed that line? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when you, yeah, when you begin to use it in a way that the Bible says not to use it, right? So I think, I mean, the Bible has this kind of clear line where it's like, wine glands the heart. And I mean, even the, the verse that I was thinking of is like in Isaiah, and this is what it says. It says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and, and he's tying this to actually the day when he's going to, like, make the world new again. So, like, the new creation, like, there's something of, like, abundance in the new creation, and he uses wine to talk about that. And so, I think the tension is, like, you know, so I, I think the tension is this, um, and so to pull back one, one step further. So, I think one of the things that can happen when, is when God calls something good, and says there's a good way to use this. I think one of the things that Christians can actually often do is we can say, well, even though God said it's good, I'm going to say it's bad. And so I think we need to actually be careful of that. So this is what Eve does in the Garden of Eden, right? Like God says, hey, don't eat from this tree. And then Eve, Eve goes, well, we're not supposed to eat of it or even touch it, right? And so what she does is she like kind of adds this extra rule and she like makes this thing that God's saying, like, this is here, just don't eat from it. And she's like, we're gonna set kind of further boundaries to keep ourselves safe from this thing. And so I think with alcohol, it's like, we are, I think one of the reasons it's important to actually set up why is it like something that we can actually enjoy and something that actually God has like kind of put into our world is something that he defines largely as good when it's used rightly is if Christians, if we look at this and we say like this is actually something that's bad and evil, what Satan wants to use is that that's called legalism, right? And so that's what Satan wants to do is actually cause that to do something in our heart where we then become self-righteous against other people who do use alcohol in a right or wrong way. But then also what it will do is actually will cause something in our hearts to, so that alcohol will not be this thing that we look at and go, God actually created this in the world for me to enjoy as his child in the right way. What it will cause in our hearts to happen is for us to say, this is something that everyone else seems to be enjoying and my dad won't let me enjoy it. Right, and so if that's the posture you take towards alcohol, it actually becomes really destructive because then it becomes this thing that your other father, Satan, holds out to you and says, take this and use it in the way I tell you, and I will bring you blessing. Where one of the things in the very beginning we want to do is we want to say, actually, the Bible tends to hold out these things, like alcohol, sex, money, like so many of the different things that we can use in a sinful way. But the Bible actually begins by saying, hey, God made this, and actually he has designed the world that when you use this rightly, it brings you blessing, and it makes you happy and fills your life with joy. But because sin is in our hearts, there's a way to misuse it. And so mm -hmm. I think for, for me, when I would say, how do we misuse it? It's when, yes, like when like the gladdening of your heart that wine does, when you take that and you like, you consume too much, right? Like the Bible would just say like, hey, don't get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there seems to be like this altering thing that happens with wine, right? And this like seems to be, it's like, we know this is true. <laughs> Drink too much wine, 
you're going to get drunk. And there's this thing that happens where the Bible's saying, like, hey, you can, like, there's this gladdening effect that things in the world have. When you take them to, like, too much of them, it actually begins to be destructive. Not just to your psyche, but actually to, like, the people around you, to the way you act and in your inhibitions. And so for me, it's, like, as simple as that. Right. I think it's just, like, there's a specific thing you do where you, take, where you drink too much where it alters your mind in such a way where you actually, be, it, not, it no longer glands your heart, but actually begins to destroy your life. Mm-hmm. And so I think in the moment, that would be where it, it turned into that. Totally. You got something with that, babe? Or? I forgot what the question was. Well, I didn't know if you were jumping off of him. Oh. No, so I, th- I think to make that, that clear, one of, the, one of the things you're trying to figure out is like, okay, so I hear that alcohol is actually a good gift that, that God created, but then what are, what are the boundaries around it that I'm not supposed to cross? The, the super simple one is from the sermon, right? Well, if you're not 21, it's illegal, so very simple. You shouldn't, you shouldn't drink alcohol. But if you are 21, there's this, there's this thing of like, okay, drunkenness, and like when do I get to that line? And the, the passage that David was just quoting is from Ephesians chapter 5, and this would honestly be a great one. If you're, if you're like wrestling with this and trying to figure out like why is it sinful to drink, like what is, what is going on with that? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 21 is a great passage for you to study and it says in verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so what Paul's doing is he's actually setting up a contrast, right? He's saying like the th- one thing you could do is get drunk with wine, and you do that for some reason, and that would be called debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And so he seems to be saying that like the, the very thing that you're after when you're getting drunk on alcohol, he's saying the reason that's sin is because God, the Holy Spirit, wants to satisfy you in that way instead, and in a better way, and in a way where he actually delivers on his promises. And so if you think about all the reasons that we will, will drink too much alcohol, like there's, there's tons of them, but it's like one of them might be you're trying to escape from stress or escape from pain or just escape from something, right? Alter your state of mind. What God is saying to you is don't get, don't get drunk on wine because that's actually gonna be destructive for your life even though there'll be an escape, be filled with the Spirit. Like, draw close to me. Like, come under, come under my influence rather than the influence of, of alcohol, and I'll actually give you, like, be your refuge. I'll be, like, an actual safe place for you. You know, sometimes with, with alcohol, the reason that we're drinking it is, is literally just for pleasure, right? And just for, like, the fun of it. And as we've mentioned, it, it does do that. But he says, rather than like giving yourself over to the influence of alcohol and having it be like your master, this thing that controls you, come more and more under my influence and experience the joy that comes from me. And so it's really key to understand that drunkenness is not just like this arbitrary, it's like, yeah, for some reason we're not supposed to to do that. There's all kinds of reasons why it makes you more foolish and it can be destructive and it's clearly, just look at the history of the world, it's clearly damaging. But a huge part of it is God is saying, like, I want to give you the thing that you're after in alcohol, and I want to give it to you in a way that I'm actually going to deliver on, on what I'm promising. And so that's, that's huge. Did you have something? Okay, sorry, you're moving. Okay, so here, here's where we are going to land the plan a little bit. We kind of, like, talked a little bit about what the Bible has to say, but some more of that's going to come out in this. So there's basically, like, four different places that people in this room could be. And we just want to talk, like, specifically to, to people in the room. And I'm going to ask you uh, guys to address it. So first, David, if there's somebody in the room that is, like, basically they're, they're actively drinking and partying and they're at this spot where they, they don't care or they don't see anything that's wrong with it, what would just be your encouragement to them? 
Yeah, um, so one of the things that's really cool is when Jesus came to planet Earth, <laughs> like he, he didn't go into like um, the places where you'd normally think like a really, really religious person would hang out. Like Jesus actually went to the parties. He went and, and he was known as like hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners. And so I think, you know, if Jesus was here today, I think you'd actually find him like at State Street. You'd, I think you'd actually see him like kind of wandering around like the, the frats and you'd be like, wait, what is this person doing? Because he's, this is like a clearly a holy person who loves God. This is someone who like is not getting drunk with, with wine, but this is someone who's like interacting in the party environment. And so Jesus, like that's what, that's what he did. And people would actually, like, because he was doing that, people actually judged him, right? They were like, they called him, like, a drunkard and a sinner, right? Because he was hanging out with people who were getting drunk. And he was, he was in contexts where people were doing that. And so I just, if you're in the room and there's, like, some, you know, you're like, oh, my gosh, like, I'm in Salt Company and I, I'm, I'm regularly getting drunk. And we're talking about drunk, being drunk as a sin. I just want you to know, like, Jesus identifies with people like you. He, he's not put off by people like you. He's not weirded out by that. Jesus actually came to plain earth to be with people like you. He loves people like you. And he loves people like us. Because this is not just a sin that's out there. This is a sin that's up here, right? We have past history with these things. And so I just want from the very beginning just for you to hear that and know that. That this is not something where we're saying like, man, this is like a uniquely bad and evil sin. We're just saying this is one of the things that will be... For Christians, something that we're going to struggle with and try to figure out how do we follow Jesus in this. So that's, that's the first thing I would just say to you is, hey, Jesus actually came for people like you, and Jesus actually is able to, um, yeah, do, inter- interact with that. He's not, he's not going to not come to your party because he's like, well, there's sinners there, so I'm not going to do that. No, he would actually be, he'd be there with you, hanging out. Okay, so, so Caitlin, maybe the, the next person that might be in that spot where they're, they're actually like, part of them still wants to have a foot in, in that world and the other part of them is like, no, but I'm, but I'm here and I'm trying to grow, grow with God. And maybe they find themselves in that spot of like a little bit of a double life. What would you, what would you say to them? Yeah. So I think if you are like struggling with like one foot in, one foot out, double life, um, I am encouraged that you're struggling, I guess, because you're counting the cost of like, okay, I know I am tempted by drinking or whatever your temptation is. And, and I know I'm also really interested in being a Christian and like doing this thing, but you're struggling. You're counting the cost of like, I know what I'm going to have to give up to like actually follow Jesus. Um, so I encourage you to like struggle through that. Like, I think you, sh- I think you need to process that with your like connection group and like trusted Christians that you have in your life of like, yeah, I know what I'm going to have to give up to like fully devote myself to like following Christ. So yeah, I guess I would say like, if you're someone who's like, struggling with the double life, um, in any way, um, struggle, struggle with someone, like t- let somebody know because your connection group leader, they're not going to be surprised that you like have a struggle because we all have some type of struggle. Um, but they want to like walk with you through that. Um, and then I would just say like, pray that God would change your heart because ultimately like if you're, if you're living a double life, you've seen a little bit of the goodness of Christianity and you're interested in the goodness of Christianity, but you're also really, really interested in the goodness of the world. And that's why you're staying in that place. So pray that God would change your heart because that's like on, on your own, you're, it's not happening, right? That's why you're living the double life right now. Um, so I would say like, let, let somebody in, like whether it's someone in your connection group, a connection group leader, a, a leader at SALT, um, and then to like pray that God would change your heart and, um, 
and help you feel that conviction and like make the choice to like follow him with your whole heart instead of one foot in one foot out because yeah I mean I I think like beyond drinking like we, there, there's many other sins that like we can we can totally hide from our Christian community right and we can live this double life um and we don't really experience like you're not going to experience the true freedom of like getting to walk in Christ until you just give it up so um I can tell you as someone who lived in that space for a good year of her life that um man it's great on the other side <laughs> so um but but I think it's good if you're if you are struggling I'm sorry you're struggling but it's also that's that's the hand of God he's he's pushing you to struggle and he's pushing you to feel like mm-hmm. man I'm feeling pulled this other way um but I don't I don't I don't know if I want to do it I don't know if I want to take that next step so it's a mature thing to consider the cost of following Jesus so just a couple more minutes here what are some just like practical strategies for fighting the temptation to to try to to, to drink too much to go to parties in a, in a way that's like leading you to sin what are just things like as a college student you're like okay so here's some like practical things that you could do to fight that temptation either of you can jump in on that one yeah so I think one of the so there, there's a bunch of things you can do in your individual life but I think the reality is we live life we live lives in community right and so I think if you show me your five closest friends the people you spend the most amount of time with I, I can show you your, your future you know so you, you just you show me them what their lives are like and I can I can say that is who you will become and so I think if, if you're someone in this like kind of double life thing or even if you're like well, I'm trying to figure out like I really I'm, I'm coming to Swalcombe I'm figuring this out but I my, the closest friends I have, they, they, this is the life they're living. And par, part of the reason you're struggling to leave this lifestyle behind is because the people who are most shaping you, that's the vision they have for their life. And that's the kind of thing they're trying to pursue. And so it's, it's not strange or weird that you're still struggling with this if those are the, your best friends you spend the most time with. So I think one of the, the hard realities is that's the way the world works. If you read through Proverbs, it, would, it says it's all the time. It's like those who make, the, make friends with fools will find themselves like in a snare. It's like that's just, what it, that's just what it means to be friends with people who want to pursue that is the vision they have for their life does rub off on you. So I would say if, if you're trying to figure out how do I do this, I think the number one thing you can do is actually say that my five closest friends are going to be people who are pursuing godliness and purity of life. And they're actually stronger Christians than I am. And those are the people I'm surrounding myself with. Like every free night, I'm trying to figure out how do I hang out with them. Now, it doesn't mean that you're like leaving behind all your old friends. It's just you're recognizing that like my closest knit group, like my five closest, those people need to actually be people who are like spurring me towards God, not trying to pull me back into this whole lifestyle. I I think that's the most practical thing. And I think if you don't do that, almost no matter what else you do, uh, won't help. Yeah, I was going to say, like, your community is everything. <laughs> like, you, you need people that know your temptations and they know how to, like, be there for you. Um, and I think it's also important, like, to identify, um, like, when, when we're tempted, we're supposed to flee, right? So if you are, if you are, like, if you, if you are one of the people that, like, like when I was, when I first became Christian um, and was, like, fresh out of the party scene, for me, I literally had to be like, I can't be at a party right now because it, I will be too tempted. Like, I have to flee that situation. Now, as I got older and more mature in my faith and stronger and, like, had the right people around me, um, I had no problem being in that environment. It was it was fine for me. Um, but I think, like, knowing, knowing where you're at, like, it, it's okay to be in a spot where you're like, 
I need to be out of this situation. Like, I know that this temptation is too great for me. I need to flee. So um, I would just say, like, mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're really trying to, like, fight temptation and you know how easily you can be, like, tempted to give in to that situation, get out of there. <laughs> like, you, don't need to, you don't need to hang around and, like, be the strong one right now and, like, be at this party to be a witness. In the future, yes, hopefully you can be in that place. But if you're, like, if this has a, been a big struggle for you, get out of there, like get yourself out of that situation. So that would be my thought. Yeah. Can I add just one thing about that? So I, I've talked with a lot of Christians over the years who the, the, their, their desire, their goal is to witness for Jesus in the party scene and in, in like these kind of environments. But because they're weak, because they're immature, mm -hmm. what ends up happening is they're like, I'm trying to be a light for Jesus. But then what ends up happening is they actually end up sinning with their friends yeah. instead of kind of living a life of godliness in front of their friends. And so I would just say, I would say this, um, the Bible is actually very clear about this, that actually if that's, the, if that's the witness you have, it's actually not an encouraging witness, it's like a damaging witness. Mm -hmm. So if, if your witness amongst your friends is like, when they sin, I sin with them, mm -hmm. the Bible would actually clearly say like, you're not being a light there, you're actually like damaging the reputation of Jesus and you're damaging the reputation of the church. And so I would just like, so if you're saying like, but I really wanna be a witness, I really want people to be saved, I would say, totally. But God wants them to be saved more than you do. And your job as a Christian is to figure out how you get mature mm -hmm. and how you get in environments where you can actually grow yourself so you can step into those planes. Yeah. But don't delude yourself in thinking that it's actually good for me to drink with my friends mm -hmm. and tell them about Jesus at the same time. Because the Bible consistently says, actually, you're not helping the situation. You're actually making it worse. And then there's, there's some of you in the room, this may be like the last category of person, that you've, you've kind of gotten to this point in your walk with God where you, like, like the, the temptation to, to drink and get drunk just isn't there anymore, isn't as strong anymore. And you can actually be in an environment at a, at a party and around alcohol where you can actually be like salt in that environment. Like rather than that environment influencing you, you actually have kind of the maturity to influence that environment but maybe you've just been away from it so long or you've kind of distanced yourself from, from people that are doing that for so long that you don't, you don't have a chance to, to do it. And that's the other part of the salt metaphor is salt has to like be out in, in the world to even do its job. And so maybe if you're in that spot, you could consider like, because I'm one of these Christians on campus that actually um, could be a positive influence in that environment, what would it look like for me to, to step closer to, to some of those people? And if you're somewhere in between those two things and you're trying to figure out how can I grow in my walk with God to the point where I, I could be an influencer in that environment, the like, but like community would be one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is what I was saying earlier. God wants to give you everything that you're after in alcohol and in partying, but in a way that he actually delivers on that promise in a way that you don't actually get kind of tricked and corrupted and destroyed like Satan he wants to destroy you God he actually wants to give you life and life abundantly and so as simple as it sounds the closer that you draw to God like there there's so many metaphors in the Bible of of talking about the joy of knowing God at, and like comparing it to even something like wine and alcohol there's so many metaphors in the Bible that talk about like what it's going to be like to be in God's presence and it talks about a party and that's because the the joy and like the faint echo of those things that actually like found fully in him. So the closer that you draw to him, the more like him you become. And, and honestly, just the more that you start to enjoy him, 
the less that you're going to need to elevate alcohol or elevate parties to, to his place and the more that those things are going to find themselves back in, in the place where they belong. And that's how you